Good morning. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name's Brian. I'm one of the pastors here, and I just want to say uh, welcome, and thanks for being here. Today we're kicking off a brand new series called Famous Last Words, and we'll be looking at uh, some of the last things that Jesus said while he was still here on the earth um, and near the end of his life um, as we lead up to Easter and celebrate all that that means for us who have a relationship with Jesus. Uh, that's coming up in two weeks. Um, you're going to want to make sure to invite all your family and friends to be here on Easter. It's going to be a great time of, of celebration, reflection on what it is that, that we're celebrating for that day. And so we really encourage you to, to be, uh, be inviting people to come and, and to take part in our worship experience here on Easter uh, alongside of you. Now, you have to come too. Like bring them and, and then you come also. Um, and as a way of kind of kicking off this series, I, I thought I'd kind of set it up a little bit like this. Um, last Saturday, so not yesterday, but, but a week ago, like the Saturday before yesterday, um, I had the esteemed joy, privilege, honor, um, such fun, I always look for them to uh, kids' birthday parties, because um, I have two little girls, and that means that I get to go to other little girl birthday parties, lots and lots and lots of pink, and yeah, so, uh, so I went to one of those, it's always a great time, it's a blast, um, and, and while I was there, um, my, my wife, who is a kindergarten teacher at a school, she was talking to this little boy that was also at the party, and he knew my wife because she was his teacher. And so she walked up, or he walked up, rather, and he's talking to my wife. And he's like, hey, is Leah's dad here? And my wife, Erin, said, well, yeah, that's, that's Leah's dad right there sitting on that, on that rock because that's what I do at birthday parties. I just kind of find a rock and chill. It's like, yeah, that's, that's him right there. And, and I was like, hey, man, what, what's up? You know Leah? He's like, yeah, Leah said that you're mean to her when she has to do homework. <laughs> All right, number one, kid, that's not how you start a relationship. Like, that's, not how, that's not a conversation starter. Your mom and dad should have taught you better. That's the first thing. And second thing, I'm only mean to Leah when it's homework time because she refuses to pay attention and to put forth the effort to accomplish it. Now, I don't know how many other parents in the room like me struggle at homework time, but I can tell you this, that if you're a parent and you have kids, at some point you will struggle during homework time. I never in a million years thought that I would scream the definition of a parallelogram at the top of my lungs while pounding on a table, but I've done it. If you don't know, parallelogram is a quadrilateral where the equal side pairs of the sides are parallel. That's how, that's, that's, your, that's your nugget of knowledge for the day as you leave Fusion City Church. You're going to make sure that you're not only spiritually educated, but that you know what a parallelogram is also. So when it comes time for your kid in third grade to do parallelograms, you can scream it at the top of your lungs and now you know the definition of it. So um, now all of that out of the way, here's, here's the thing. The poor kid, man. Like... Her dad has a temper, and Jesus is working on me, and I'm trying to, like, eradicate that from my life, but I haven't managed to get all the, the, the parental frustration out of my life yet, so I still scream from time to time during homework. Um, but the poor kid, man, she just couldn't get it. Like, we had been over it and over it and over it, and I had given her the definition, and we had talked about it and what it meant, and I showed her one, and then we move over to the homework. I'm like, now, is this a parallelogram? I don't know. Like, we just, like, over, over and over and over and over and over and over, and you get the idea. And then that kind of got me thinking, you know, all of us have had that experience at some time or another in our life where maybe it was everybody else around us could get it. Like everybody else could figure something out or they understood what was going on or they knew how to do the problem or they saw the thing that we couldn't see or whatever. And for whatever reason, 
for whatever reason, we just couldn't seem to, to get it or to, to understand it or to be able to see the picture in the picture or to figure it all out or whatever. I, I, we've all had that moment. If you're not sure if you've had that moment or not, this is what it sounds like when, when after a long period of time and everybody else has gotten it 15 minutes ago and you're still on page one trying to figure it out. And eventually, if you've ever said this, then you've had this moment. If you've ever said, if you ever went like this, oh, now I get it. If you've ever said that, then you've had that moment. You've had that moment where everybody else got it but you. Now, oftentimes, it's the majority that gets it right, and it's the, the minority that's, that's kind of left on the outside looking in at everybody else that was able to pick it up the first time. But the majority isn't always right. Not always. But, this is a key thought if you want to write this down. But when enough people are saying the wrong thing, it makes it sound like it's the right thing. When enough people are saying the wrong thing, it makes it sound like the right thing. Now, again, we've all had that moment where we couldn't get it and everybody else did. But there are occasions where the majority just doesn't have it right. Oftentimes, it's not so much that it's the enough people, but it's the particular type of people and what they are saying. This, this pertains particularly now into our culture to, to celebrities. Somehow they seem to have a louder voice, politicians, leaders, anybody in a position of authority or influence, like whatever they are saying, if enough people in, in a high status or authority are saying the wrong thing, it still could seem like the right thing, even though it's not. So we have to be careful about who we're listening to. That, hey, that includes preachers. Right? You got to know, I'm, I'm not above being questioned or checked up on or fact-checked or whatever. And there have been times in my ministry where I said something during a sermon and I got an email during the week. And somebody's like, hey, Pastor Brian, you said this and I don't think that's right. And then I went back and probably listened to the podcast and then did a little bit more research. And like, yep, they were right. I got it wrong. So I emailed them back and I tell them, yep, I got that wrong. And there have been some Sundays where I got up on the stage and the first thing out of my mouth was not, hey, here's the new message for today. But, hey, last week I said this. And I was wrong. It's happened a couple of times. Not, not too terribly often. I don't want you to feel like I'm, I'm kind of guessing up here all the time. But, but a couple of times in the 10, so, 10 or so years that I've been doing this, somebody has, has fact-checked me. And, man, I'm not above that. You should be checking up on every person that you listen to and anybody that you consider an influence in your life. And if I'm one of those people, check me. <laughs> Please make sure that, that what I say is lines up with what God's word says. Now, the reason that I'm drawing all of this out is because during Jesus' earthly ministry, he exercised power over nature. He exercised power over demons. He gave no thought to money or status. He, he read people's thoughts. The Bible in, on, on occasions it say that somebody thought something and then Jesus responded to what they thought. He performed miracle after miracle. He healed the sick. He cured the blind. He cured lepers. He did all these amazing things to, to, to signify and to justify and to declare himself as the Messiah that was promised to come. 
Yet with all of the things that everybody had, all of the evidence in the world that he was who he says that he was, they still arrested him, tried him, and convicted him, and hung him on a cross to die. Even though all of the evidence pointed to the contrary. The majority of the people got it wrong. And as Jesus was on the cross, he said a few things that we're going to draw attention to both today and over the course of the next couple of weeks. But the first being this, found in Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 34. It says that two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the question that I have, had, have, present tense, is how could they deny Jesus when all of the evidence was so clear? See, because here's something that we have to realize. That for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus showed up on earth, that the Jewish people had a way of relating to God. They had a system that worked for them, a system that they understood about law following and rule following. And if we follow the rules, then God blesses us. If we don't follow the rules, then God punishes us. If we're obedient, we get blessing. If we're disobedient, we get punishment. That's the way it worked with God for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. They had these religious leaders, two groups known as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And these two groups of people were the leaders of the Jewish people. And they told the Jewish people how to relate to God. And they were the leaders of this system that everybody knew and understood. So their spiritual understanding was that there is a certain way that God works. And that's the way that it is. It just is. And anything that's contrary to that, anything that's different from that, can't be the way that we relate or connect with God. Now, not only was there a religious system in place, but there was a a political and a governmental system in place where these Jewish people who had been under the rule of nation and nation after nation after empire after empire, they had been slave for over a thousand years. And finally, 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 under the Roman Empire rule, the Jewish people finally had some peace. For about 400 years, there was peace between the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, and the empire of Rome. It's something called the Pax Romana. I remember learning this when I was in college, and they explained this whole Pax Romana thing. And, for all, and all of a sudden, for me, it kind of made sense why people were so willing to reject Jesus as the Messiah. Because his claims and the things that he was claiming to be and the person that he was claiming to be would have upset everything that they already had in place. And for a thousand years, they had been enslaved and tortured and treated poorly. And now under the Romans, they finally have some peace. And here comes this Jesus guy, and he threatens to ruin all of it. If they were to believe that he was who he says that he was. Jesus claims threatened the rule of the religious leaders. And he threatened the peace between the Jews and the Romans. For them to have accepted him as the Messiah would have meant the end of everything they were taught to value. Can you feel 
that tension? Maybe if you could just, if you could just for a moment transport yourself to the ancient Near East in the days of Jesus. You're a Jewish believer of God. You're a Jewish follower of God. And here comes this guy and he threatens everything. If you were to believe his claims, even with all the things that you could see, if you are to declare him the Messiah, the one that was promised, that means that everything you've ever believed, you've ever valued, is off the table. It doesn't matter. Everything's different. It's in that tension that I can see all the amazing things that he's done, but if I believe that he is who he says that he is, it's going to change everything. It's in that tension that Jesus offers this prayer from the cross for the very people that put him there. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They're so confused. They don't know what they're doing. Which doesn't really do much to solve the tension, at least for me. Because if they don't know what they're doing, then why do they need to be forgiven? Wouldn't we say that because they don't know what they're doing, they're not guilty? Right? That, that makes sense. Why would they need to be forgiven if they don't know what they're doing? Either, either one or the other is true. Either they are guilty because they know what they're doing and they chose to do the wrong thing and they're guilty so they need to be forgiven, or they don't know what they're doing, therefore they're not guilty and they don't need to be forgiven. But Jesus says in one breath, in one prayer, in one sentence, Father, forgive them, they're guilty, but they don't know what they're doing. And here's why Jesus prayed that prayer, if you want to write this down. Ignorance has no bearing on guilt. What you do or don't know has no bearing on whether you're innocent or guilty. You know how we know this is true? Because every single time I've ever been pulled over for a speeding ticket, the police officer will walk up to the window, all tough because they are. And then they always ask this ridiculous question, which I hate. Mr. Duncan, do you know why we pulled you over? Like, dude, if I knew why you pulled me over, I wouldn't have been doing whatever I was doing. Or if I knew you were there, I certainly wouldn't have been doing it. Right? Like, this is a seemingly ridiculous, a ridiculous question. If there are police officers in the group today that I haven't met yet, would you please meet me after and explain to me why y'all asked that dumb question? Kevin, the only place lead for us, isn't here today. I was going to ask him when I got here, but he's not here today. I'll have to, I have to ask somebody else. Because here's the reality. Never, not once, not ever, not ever, not ever. And I've gotten lots of speeding tickets. That's my parents. Like, I've gotten lots of tickets in my day. Never, not one time ever have they pulled me over, walked to the window, said, Mr. Duncan, do you know why we pulled you over? And I'm like, nah, man, I got no idea. And they're like, oh, cool, then you're free to go. <laughs> never. 
Not one time has that ever happened. You want to know why? Because ignorance of the speed limit does nothing on my, nothing for my guilt. I am guilty of speeding whether I knew I was speeding or not. So Jesus looks at a group of people that they hung him on a cross who are killing him. And in one sentence, in one prayer to his heavenly father, both declares them guilty because they are. Doesn't matter what they know or don't know, they're guilty. He declares them guilty and then in the next breath asks his father to forgive them. If you're in this room this morning and for all of your life, you've rejected what we in the church know to be the gospel. The good news of a God that loves you enough to give his son so that you, that the sacrifice of his son would cover the debt of your sins so that you could once again have a relationship with him, your heavenly father, who's holy and righteous and perfect and without sin. And you who are sinful and unrighteous and, 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 and unholy, can now be in a relationship with a holy and perfect God through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. God did that for you because he wanted to have a relationship with you for the good of your life and for the glory of his name. He's done that for you. And if for all of your life, for whatever reason, you have rejected that truth, this morning Jesus would say the same thing about you that he said about the very people that put him on the cross, that you are in fact guilty for your unbelief. You are guilty for rejecting the gospel, the good news of a God who loves you, who would give his son for you. You're guilty of that. And in the same breath, he would forgive you and offer to cover your sin with his sacrifice so that you could once again be in a relationship with your heavenly father, his heavenly father, making you an heir of the kingdom, a brother and sister in and of Christ. Jesus declares you guilty and then offers to save you. The same way that he did when he, from the cross, looked at those that put him there and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. <clears throat> but for so many of us, at one point in our lives, and maybe still, we have rejected Jesus for the same reason that the Jewish people rejected Jesus. Is that because he failed to meet our expectations. You see, the Jewish people expected a militant or political leader to be the Messiah. That they expected that, that someone with a, a lot of might and a lot of power and a lot of force would come in and overthrow and overtake Rome and then establish the nation of Israel as the kingdom of the day. That was their expectation. And then here comes this man who talks all about loving people, who, who heals the sick and hangs out with the outcasts. He wasn't what they expected, and so they rejected him because he failed to meet their expectations. And for a lot of us in the room, the reason that you have rejected Jesus is because he has failed to meet the expectations that you had set for whatever you thought Jesus was or who you thought Jesus was supposed to be. The problem with that is that when we, when we make our expectations the measure that he has to meet, we do something very, very out, out of line if he is, in fact, the God of, of all creation and of all people. It puts us in the place of him having to meet our expectations instead of us trying to meet his. It makes us God when we say, I'll believe in that God when he does 
whatever I expect. These, these are some of the most difficult conversations that we have as Christians, isn't it? Because we feel, when our friends, when we present the, the message of the gospel to those that we're close to or that we love or those that we even just met as we're presenting the gospel and we get this pushback. Well, yeah, if your God is what he says, what you say that he is, if he is who the Bible says that he is, then why does fill in the blank happen? Then in that moment, what has happened is an expectation has been placed on Jesus, given to us by another human. And then we as Christians oftentimes feel the need to defend Jesus to humans. When in fact, what that does is it creates this mindset that he has to meet their expectations in order for them to believe. And if that seems wrong to you, it should. Because he's God. Jesus failing to meet the expectations that people have set for him is what leads to some of the most, most outrageous claims of people. The problem is when we allow people to demand that Jesus meet all of their expectations before they will believe. If we jump through all the hoops, if we explain and defend, if we rationalize and concede, what that does is it puts the created above the creator. It demands that the creator submit to the feelings of that which he created. And if it seems wrong to you to ask the creator to meet the demands of the created, it should. See, it's that kind of logic that that leads us to say things like, it's my life. I should be able to do whatever I want to do. It leads us to say things like, it's my body, it's my choice, it's my money, I'll do with it what I want. It's my life, I'll live it however I want to live it, nobody can tell me what to do. It's that kind of logic, that God must meet the demands of his creation, the expectations of his creation, that leads us to say things like that. The problem is, is that when you carry those things to their furthest conclusion, you run into problems. Because you and I make terrible gods. And if we're the ones that set the expectations for what God should and shouldn't do, then we're always going to end up in trouble. Because you have to follow those those expectations to their furthest conclusions. I don't know how many of you have ever studied or practiced or participated in debate. But one of the the key principles in, in winning a debate is that you make the person you're debating with carry their premise to its furthest conclusion, to an extreme conclusion, and then you make them defend that. And if they can't defend the extreme conclusion, then you can work your way back and defeat their argument. That's like a... I geek out of that stuff. Y'all are looking at me like, that's so nerdy. But that's okay. So that's how debate works, right? But when we say, when we say that God must meet all of our expectations, it's my body, my choice, my life, my choice, my money, my choice. When we say all of those things, when we think that way or allow other people to think that way, and then we feel the necessity to defend God for those things, what we're doing is we, we have to then imagine what that means if we carry it to its furthest conclusion. Let me give you one example. There are hundreds, but let me give you one of what this looks like played out in our modern culture. A few months ago, there was a, there was a, a bill or, or something submitted to Congress that, that they wanted to vote on to see if it would pass late-term abortions up to the day of birth, right? Now, 
for me. It just seems crazy. It seems ludicrous that we could that we could get to a place where we're having a discussion whether it's right or wrong to abort a baby the day before it was to be born. It seems crazy to me. But what that is is the extreme conclusion of my body, my choice. Because my body, my choice means that God has no authority over how I use my body. My money, my choice means that God has no authority over how I spend my money. My life, my choice means that God has no authority over how I live my life. And all of those things put the created above the creator. When when we fail to see what's clearly in front of us, when we fail to make our expectations, our feelings, what seems right to us, the God of our lives, it puts us in the place of God. It puts us trying to place God in the box that we've created and designed for him. The other option is that we surrender our expectations to what God says about our lives and how it should be lived and our bodies and how they should be used and our monies and our money and how it should be spent and all of those other things. When we, we, we surrender and submit our expectations to that which God says. In other words, when, when God says something and I feel differently, guess who wins? Not me, but him. God may not always meet your expectations. God may not have done what you thought God was going to do when you gave your life to Christ. God may not do what you think he's going to do when you give your life to Christ. But I can say with as much authority as I have and as much gumption and emphasis as I can give it, that God's version of how your life is supposed to play out is always better than the one you would have dreamed for yourself. Now, the question that we have to, to answer then is, okay, so Brian, if I submit myself to the expectations of God, if I live my life according to what he says I'm supposed to do, if I handle life and money and body and all those things the way that God says I'm supposed to handle them, what about all those people that disagree? What if they're the majority? What if it's starting to seem right to me because so many other people seem to be able to wrap their minds around the way that it works and what I believe, what the Bible says doesn't line up with what society or culture is telling me in this moment. Brian, I feel like I'm on the outside looking in. and maybe, Is there something I'm missing? If, if you're beginning to have those questions and you wonder about all the people on the outside trying to still apply expectations for God for how they believe that he should live and act and work and interact with humanity, where does that leave them? Well, let me, let me, let me be blunt. It leaves them in the same place that it left the people who crucified Jesus. It leaves them ignorant, confused, mistaken, wrong. It leaves them wrong. And their ignorance of what is right does nothing to remove their guilt. They're guilty. They're just wrong. 
But in the same way that Jesus looked at those who were ignorant, guilty, wrong, confused, mistaken, and prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That should be the response of every Christ follower as well. Towards every person that disagrees, that thinks differently, that can't see what's clearly before them, that's mistaken, that's arguing for a point that's counter to what we know is right. See, oftentimes there comes this little air of arrogance when you know that you're right. And it's great being a follower of Christ because we have access to this wonderful book that God has given us so that we, we know what's right, we know what's true, we know what's authoritative, we know how to live. We've been given instructions and we've been given help and guidance and principles on how to live. And oftentimes it's easy for me, for me personally, me, me specifically, to look at somebody that doesn't believe how I believe, disagrees with the way that I think, and the things that I think are clear and evident and plain to see, they can't seem to latch on to. It's easy for me to be arrogant and say, man, that idiot. Ah, man. They frustrate me. And I want to pound a table and yell truth at them in the same way that I do to my daughter during homework. How much better would it be if I, like Christ, could look at a person that disagrees with me on every point and in every way and say, they're wrong, they're confused, they hadn't got it yet. But Father, would you forgive them? But they don't know that they're wrong. Father, would you forgive them? Can I tell you what happens when we get that right? Man, it so changes how you look at people. It so changes how you interact with people that you disagree with. It makes you less angry. It makes you less frustrated. It makes you more like Christ. So here will be my, my challenge to you this week and just a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the, uh, the impact of, of social media and all the things that that, that does for us. And that there, there, there fails to, to be a week that goes by where I don't read something on, on Facebook or see something on Instagram and I, j- I just shake my head. Sometimes it makes me angry. Sometimes I get frustrated. Sometimes I have to type and delete because I do that a lot. Like I type up an answer that's all mean and not at all like Jesus And I'm trying to get to the place where after I type it, I say a little prayer. You know what that prayer is? Father, who forgive them? Because they dumb as a box of bricks. They don't know. God, they don't know you like I know you. They don't know the gospel like I know the gospel. They don't know your son the way that I know your son. God, would you forgive them? They don't know what they're talking about. They're so lost. They're so confused. They're so ignorant and they're so wrong. Father, forgive them. Now, imagine with me how different your social media traffic might be. Some of you. I see your posts. 
if instead of responding to everything that makes you angry and everything that you disagree with, by telling that person about the kind of idiot that they are, what if we just stopped and pray a little prayer? One sentence. You ready for it? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And, oh, and while you're at it, forgive me for not being a whole lot like your son. Because I believe that if we become a church full of people that start forgiving people the same way that Jesus has forgiven us, that it's going to increase the amount of influence that we have in the lives of the people that we see on a day-to-day basis or we interact with on a week-to-week basis, whether it be through social media or personally. And when we become the kind of people that don't meet disagreement and with frustration, but we meet disagreement with forgiveness, then we'll become the kind of church that Jesus would have planted if he planted a church. A church full of people looking at the lost people and the people they disagree with and the people that argue with them and the people that want to throw out crazy ideas about the way the world is supposed to work. If instead of responding to every crazy idea about the way the world is supposed to work with anger and frustration and snide comment and sarcastic remarks, that's my sin of choice, sarcasm. If we could just stop with that and start with Father, forgive them. I just can't help but believe that that's going to make us be a church that has a tremendous more amount, a tremendous more amounts of influence than we had before we started saying that prayer for those that we disagree with. So that's my challenge to you. This week and forever, instead of arguing, because we learned a couple of weeks ago that arguing just makes you blue in the face, does no good. Instead of arguing, instead of passionately disagreeing in a way that doesn't bring any glory to God, would you just stop and say this prayer? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're talking about. They're lost people acting like lost people. That should be expected. So, Father, I forgive them. God, I'm going to ask you to do the same. For they know not what they do. Let's pray. God, this morning as we, uh, as we examine our lives, God, and our interactions with others, Lord, would you heighten our awareness of all the ways that we don't look a lot like your son, Jesus. God, all the times that we let our frustrations get the better of us, our temper, our sarcasm. God, in all the ways that we respond to others in a ways that wouldn't be pleasing to you or honoring to the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. God, would you forgive us? Would you forgive us? And then, God, would you help us to begin responding to those that you created in your image, those that you love? and that you desire a relationship with. God, would you heighten and increase our influence by causing us to first stop and to offer the same prayer for them that your son did for those that crucified him and your son does today for us. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. God, if we can get that right, just can't help but believe that you're going to make us a church, make us a people with lots more influence to be able to show people the beauty, the glory, the majesty of your son Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen.